This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Hey, welcome everybody. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. Tonight's class is, you would think I would get this ready for the second time, but I did not. Again, everybody's welcome. All the women are welcome to join us every Thursday at 8 p.m. at 16.01. Quentin Road, uh, the BJX location, which again, we graciously appreciate the BJX for hosting us over here. And uh, we've got everything. 1601. And no next week. Right, next week, next week, next week, next Thursday. The date is August. Uh, whatever is a week from, whatever, August 16th, thank you. Uh, we will uh, not, well, I will not be here, uh, but there might be a class again. Stay tuned from however you get your uh, class's information from. Okay, men's class. Men's class is on Tuesdays at, it's on Tuesdays at Avenue S and E7. The address is 630 E7 um, at 8pm, 630 Avenue S. I don't know what I'm saying. Um but again, for that class particularly, please do email me uh, and I will uh, let you know regarding that class. But it's open to everybody as all the classes are. Okay, let us begin. I think we, we finished everything? Yeah, okay. I don't need the computer yet. A computer will uh, possibly be needed later. Okay, so tonight, 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 tonight. Very, very important class. Uh, I, it is a little bit of a deep class. You do have to... Um, I'm going to try to simplify it as much as I possibly can. Uh, and I was actually on the fence if I should give this class... Uh, for the woman, or I shouldn't give this class for the woman. I decided that I will give this class for the woman. I think it's it's uh, very, very important for everybody. The reason why I was on the fence, because a lot of this has to do with the way that you learn Gemara. And I'm assuming the majority of you sitting over here do not learn Gemara. Um, some might say I may hope that, but we're not going to get into politics at this point in time. Uh, but but it, but even with our Gemara, it's still an important topic. So what is the topic? The topic is is we've been dealing with uh, many, many classes now on proving that the Torah is from God. Not only do we prove the Torah is from God, we also prove that everything that we have to date is also from, uh, from Hashem, it's also divine. So now, the question that has to come up for anybody who knows anything about Judaism, and this is really important, people do need to think about this, and if you haven't thought about it till this point, then you should think about why you haven't had this question. The question is as follows. If we're saying that the Torah is divine, then how in the world is it possible that there are arguments, there's something called machloket, there's a machloket in, in, in the Gemara, in the Mishnah, we have machloket, we have argument, the rabbi says this is the law, the rabbi says this is the law. How is it possible, if we have the right Torah, if we have the correct version of the Torah, then how can we have any arguments? That any right, any, any skeptic, the first question that they should ask is this, for some reason they don't, I, I don't know why, but this would be one of the best questions. You claim that you have the right Torah, then why are you arguing about it? You should have all the right answers. Or maybe you don't have the right Torah. Maybe you don't have something that you, you're, you're missing a link to it. So today, B'zal Hashem, we're going to explain how we understand Machloket, how we understand this idea of arguments in the Torah. How do we understand this if we intend to claim, and we do, that we have the right uh, Torah. So... Uh, and I would have to mention, this is very important, uh, this is again another class that it's not so uh, good to, you know, just hear clips of it. This is very important to hear the entire thing, because if you just heard the first part, um, let's say somebody goes and just cuts and edits it out, just what I just said till now, that's it. Rabbi says that uh, the Torah is not divine, there's arguments, end of it, and... Uh, uh, so, so this is, this is a class that you do have to, uh, you know, stay with me and, and be with me till the end. Okay, first and foremost... 
It is very important to realize, and this is Rav Victor Miller also says this like this, that the main points of the Torah, there's no argument. The truth is that we do have arguments in the Torah. We do have arguments what the halacha is, what, you know, different, uh, and different, there's, there's arguments on all different points. But the main points of the law, the main points of the Torah, there's no arguments. For example, when it says pri etz hadal, for, when we're talking about an etrog to use on Sukkot, no one says, one says it's a pomegranate, one says it's a, you know, an apple, one says it's a, everybody says it's an etrog. No one argues in it. You have an idea, of, for example, for Tfilin. Tfilin, everybody says that it has to be square. There's four parchments in the Shalosh, there's one parchment in the Shaliyat. They, you know, it's, all the details, no one argues about. There's minor details that they do argue about and we're going to speak about it. When the Torah says that you have to be afflicted on Yom Kippur, no one argues what the... You realize, when it says that, the Torah says that you have to be afflicted on Yom Kippur. There's so many interpretations that you could... Afflicting can mean to go to a boring lecture. Or go to any lecture for some people, uh, you know, unfortunately. But it, it could be hitting yourself, banging your head against a wall, uh, watching your siblings. It, there's so many different interpretations for afflictions. What is the, the term of afflictions? Yet nobody argues. Everybody says and everybody knows this means fasting. It means that you have to fast. When the Torah says that uh, uh, you have to slaughter as I have commanded you. Again, this we spoke about in the previous classes. Nowhere in the Torah does it say specifically how to slaughter. Yet, everybody agree, agrees the way that we have to slaughter. When the, uh, it says in Dvarim that uh, it, it says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, uh, you know, soul for a soul. It doesn't mean that if somebody knocks a tooth out, you know, Bezin's going to come. Okay, come, 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 come. You know, get the dentist over here. You know, get Dr. Drillman over here. And then they go and they take a hammer and they just knock out the other tooth. Or they'll go, well, I was visual. <laughs> so then you have, let's say somebody got a blood, you know, somebody lost an eye. No other, you know, surgeon is going to come and say, hey, listen, without any emotions, right? Let's come and let's take out, uh, let's take out your eye. Everybody knows that this is referring to monetary compensation. So when the Torah does go, and then we do have arguments on the Torah, this is in reference to particularly minor details. Again, there's always an exception to the rule, but they're minor details. They're also details that rarely occur, or they're also details that are a lot of hypothetical. Like, what would happen in this scenario? What would happen in this scenario? But the general rules, the general, the general halakha, the general ideas of the Torah, no one argues about. The, not only does no one argue about this, Hashem himself knew, well of course he knew because he knew the future, but he knew that this was going to happen, and not only did he know, he put it in the Torah, he says, when there will be a machloket, this is what you need to do. So we already have it since the beginning, that what you need to do with the machlokas. It says in Exodus chapter 23 verse 2, it says, You have to go according to the majority view. So if you have a machloket, you have to go according to the majority. If the majority says one thing, you go according to the majority. And again, we do have to mention, that doesn't mean that if the majority holds, the majority of the world holds one religion, then we all have to follow that. Right? There's a lot of different subcategories that we're dealing with. But when the majority of the rabbis go and they, they say one thing, and a small sect says another thing, we go according to the majority. Obviously, there's a lot of laws that underlining it, but we'll take it as it is. Now, with that being said, then we should still have no machloket. Because even though, let's say, back then they would have a machloket, they would have an argument, and a group of rabbis says this, a group of rabbis says this, they'll just, nail it, they'll just finish it off. Just what? Let's just, add, let's just take a vote. What does this, what, how many say this, and how many said that? And that's the way it went for a long period of time. And until roughly around the time of the Second Temple, during the time of the Second Temple, when, when, uh, when Israel was no longer under, under its own rule, it was ruled under, under the Greek rule, and not only did it, 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 was it have pressure from the outside, it also had pressure from within. So you had the Greek putting pressure from the outside. The Jews within were, you know, Jews were becoming more Hellenistic, more Greek-like, and they were, they were you know, causing problems. Let's just call it a problem people dealing within the Jews. So, when you have a nation that has problems from the outside and problems from the inside, needless to say, things weren't going as smooth. To the point was where the Greeks at one point, they, they, they 
forbid to actually have groups of rabbis come together. They were forbid to have a Sanhedrin, they forbid to have all these things. So from this point on, this is where machlokas started happening. This is where you had, for example, Hillel and Shammai had three machlokas. They had three, all of a sudden things started coming up, and as the time went by, and as the rabbis couldn't convene together, this is where machloket, uh, machloket, uh, grew. Until the time of Yavne. Yavne was after the destruction of the Sanhedrin Temple, where Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai was able to convince Vespasian to go, and take the group of sages and put them all in the, all the group from Yavne and he combined them there. There for the first time in a very long time we had all the group of rabbis in one section and there we settled a lot of laws. A lot of halachot were settled during that time. However, as you know, history plays out. You know, it didn't uh, work out, uh, you know, as, as, as well as we would have uh, wanted to. However, still nothing was, was, uh, was left. What is the right word I'm looking for? No problems. Let's leave it like that. There was no problems that came out from this. The, what happened was, is that there was a certain point in time where the Jews were going into exile. And they were going into exile, so the sages realized that we have to unify everything. There can't be rabbis saying this and rabbis saying this. We have to unify it. Why? Because hopefully we'll speak about it. Hopefully we'll touch upon it. So first of all, we have to first discuss, number one, is what can there be a machloket about? Can there be a machloket just about anything? Is there something in particular that, that we only have arguments about? So, the and I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm really oversimplifying this, but the laws that we have from the Torah. So a majority of the laws are something that we know as, as laws that came directly from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu from, from God. So when God went and God gave the Torah to the Jewish nation, He gave over the six, He gave over all the, you know, He gave over the 613 commandments. Not only did He give over the 613 commandments, He also gave the details to the laws. So the details of what He do in each particular case. However, there was a section of details that were not given over. Those details were later to be derived through a particular method of derivation. It's uh, There's 13 ways that the Torah could be expounded upon. There was a certain way that God left it out and says, hey listen, the rabbis, you're going to decide, you're going to figure out these details by, let's call it, mathematical equations that I'm giving you. So if we split this into two, we have two sets of laws. We have one laws that were received from God, one laws that were derived by the rabbis through the mathematical equation. Again, bad interpretation, but let's call it a mathematical equation that God gave. Does that make sense so far? So, the the, the reason why we have the computer on the screen is if I see that you guys are with me in throughout this thing, then I would like to go through the 13 methods of explanation, explain what it is, and then go through all the details of examples and so on and so forth, but we'll leave that for the end. Just give you an example of something very, very common and very easy, something called a kalvachomer. A kalvachomer is something like this. Let's say that I have two guys. One his name is Sam, and one his name is Max. And if I were to tell you that Max is stronger than Sam, that is all the information that I'm giving you. Max is stronger than Sam. How much? Doesn't matter. All you know is Max is stronger than Sam. And then I tell you that Sam, who's weaker, can pick up 100 pounds. What would you know about Max? He could for sure pick up 100 pounds. For uh, 101, maybe, maybe 250, maybe 300. You know, yeah. How much more so? We don't know. We just know that he for sure could do that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, an example that we use it for the, um, in the Torah, for example, is we know what is more stringent for, uh, well, actually anything. Let's say cooking, for example. Shabbat or Yom Tov? Shabbat, right? Shabbat is more stringent. Shabbat is more stringent. If I were to tell you that something is for, uh, is permitted on Shabbat, then I could say Kalvachomer for sure it's permitted on Yom Tov. Make sense? So there are 13 ways that we go and we can expand things from the Torah. This is the way this was given by God 
to the Jewish people, and this is the way. So there were laws that were given directly from Moshe Rabbeinu, and there were laws that were derived from the rabbis. Now the laws, both of these are equally binding, there's no, you know, this is all, you know, uh, equally binding. The laws that were given from Moshe Rabbeinu, no one argues about. In fact, when the Gemara goes back and forth, and then it says, Halakha Moshe Sinai, no one argues about, and that's the way that it goes. However, laws that were derived by the rabbis, that there could be an argument about. And it would make sense, because each rabbi has a different thought process, each rabbi has a different intellectual level, and again, we'll see how much this actually comes into play, but... We see over here that that is the only time that you're going to have, uh, so the laws that were derived, that is the only time that you could have a uh, machloket. Now this, this brings us into a very interesting point. It's sort of a side point, but it is important, that, and uh, it should come up in your mind, but if you didn't, I'm going to answer it anyways. It says that the entire Torah was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? So everything in the Gemara and the Mishnah, everything was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. Yet, at the same point in time, it, uh, it says that in Kohelet, chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Masha Whatever was, will be. And then it, the Pasuk finishes, There's nothing new under the sun. Yet Rashi over there goes and says, you know, if you could go introduce novel interpretations to the Torah. Which means is that there's something called Chidushim. Chidushim is novel interpretations to the Torah. So the question is like this, I don't understand. How could it be a new interpretation? Does Moshe Rabbeinu know? Did, was it given by Moshe Rabbeinu? Was it not? Did Moshe know about this? Did Moshe not? What do you mean by something called a chidush? Does it make sense? Is a good question? I think so. Okay, good. The um, Gemara in Menachos goes at Menachos page 29b. There was a, a very interesting scenario that took place. It was when Moshe was going was in heaven and uh, Hashem was, was showing him the Torah. And in the Torah, there were crowns. Crowns, and, crowns mean, so you have Hebrew letters. So for example, let's say, well, let's say this is a dalet, right? Above over here, let's say you would have like a few lines. Those things are, those lines on top of the letters are known as crowns. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, why are you, you know, including the, cra- the crowns? No one's going to know what it means except for, you know, except for you. So he says, no, there's going to be a time, there's going to be somebody by the name of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is going to go and he's going to be able to darshan, he's going to be able to learn a lot of things from those crowns. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, can I see him? Can I, you know, and Moshe, so Hashem showed him, he put him in his class, in Rabbi Akiva's class, and he put him in the eighth row. And Rabbi Akiva was saying things, and Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't sure what's going on. So he says, I don't understand. He says, you know, if you have a person like this, why are you giving the Torah to me? Give it through, through Rabbi Akiva. So Moshe, God told Moshe Rabbeinu, this is, this is the way I intended to do it. But the question that we have to ask is, how could Rabbi Akiva expound something that Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't know if Moshe Rabbeinu got the Torah? How, how is that possible? So Rashi answers this, a very simple answer. He says, Moshe Rabbeinu was shown this insight, this preview to the future to Rabbi Akiva before he received the Torah. So it makes sense, he doesn't understand it because it wasn't given to him yet. But yet we still have to understand something else. We still have to understand that how can we understand Chidushim in the Torah? How can we understand novel interpretation in the Torah? So, don't talk with water in your mouth, that's a good lesson. Okay, the... When Moshe was given the Torah, so we said that Moshe was given the laws. Moshe was given the entire Torah. There were some details that all he was given was instructions on how to come out and derive those information. So in essence, Moshe knows everything, Moshe understood everything that would come out from the Torah, but not because it was given to him, because he knew the levels, the way that things were derived. He knew the ways, the Shoshet Amid, the Shaton, and the Shoshet Bahim, he knew that, and that's why he was able to go and understand it. But rather, there were things that were God didn't tell Moshe Rabbeinu, and, Mo, and the, it, was, uh, it was the obligation of either Moshe and the sages afterwards to go and expand uh, these uh, details. And again, this is what we said, that this was, um, this is where you have Machloket. So far, so good? Makes sense? Okay, good. Very big question. A very, very big question is a big fat why. Why God? Why do we need this? What's the whole point of having the rabbis go and, so you give us majority of the laws you give us, but then the rabbis have to, you know, get the minor details, they have to go and extract it. Just give us everything. If you're already giving it to us, just give us all the details. Isn't that so amazing? We'll avoid all machokit. There's not going to be any argument. 
Again, well, you know, I, I was once saying, telling you that, you know, that I, was, I was asking somebody, uh, why is there arguments in the Torah? He says, because we're Jews, and Jews argue. That's it. You know, that, but in essence, we're not, if there's nothing to argue, we won't argue. Well, I, again, some people will. We'll argue regarding anything. Those type of people, uh, you know, just make sure not to marry them. Uh, but everything else, you know, the, the, the Jews, yes, we're known to argue because we, we are critical thinkers. And we think outside the box. We, we think a little bit differently. But when, we, when we, we look at the Torah, we look at the options, God did it for a purpose. Why did God make it that we should derive laws from it? It would make so much more sense, at least in our humble minds, to say, just give us everything, avoid all confrontation, avoid all machloket, and shalom al Israel. Literally, shalom al Israel. They don't have any problems. So, the Maral answers this. The Maral answers this something very, very beautifully. And it says like this. It says that... When God gave us the Torah, He wanted to merge a relationship with the Jewish people. Now, when God, is, who is an infinite being, is giving to us, people, humans, a finite being, something, it's out of our scope of understanding. It's, it's beyond us to understand. Now, you can't have a relationship when someone's way up here and you're down here. There's no connecting, you know, land value. There's nothing, there's nothing that you could actually, you know, attach to. Yeah, we'll keep the Torah. Yeah, we'll have it. But the connection, the relationship is not going to be there. However, say you have, and by the way, this is where the Gemara says, the Gemara above Metziah, page 38a, says that a person prefers one measure of his own produce, of his own work, more than nine measures of the, something that was just given to him for, for free. People would enjoy better, and I know everybody wants to just get presents and will enjoy it, you know, very happily. But push comes to shove. At the end of the day, you, if you work for something, you appreciate it much more, you enjoy it much more. So there is a need to have you work for something because that is more, you know, uh, I guess, appreciative, and there's a higher level to it. So God wanted to forge a relationship with us. That's one of the reasons that we're here. Now, in order to do that, there has to be some sort of common ground. So God says, I'm going to give you the bulk. You're going to have it. But there's going to be a part of it that I'm not going to give you. You're going to have to derive it. Why? Because then you're going to forge a relationship. This is something that you understand. I'm going to give you the equations. You have all of a sudden a connection to it. Now, I want to uh, you know, extend this. And this is my own interpretation of it. The whole purpose we know in this world is everything we do, and it's very scary to think about it. Everything that we do, whether good or bad, is going to change our status in the next world. We know the purpose for this world is not in this world. It's actually for the next world. So if we do something good, we raise our level, we raise our status, we raise whatever you want to call it in the next world. If we do something bad, we lower our status, we lower our thing, punishment, reward, however you want to think about it. Now, the idea of doing something, of doing a mitzvah, doesn't come into effect only, okay, you did this mitzvah, you get a check, equals 10 points, goes into the next bucket, you know, you get 10 points. That's not all the factors. There are thousands upon thousands of different factors that come into play. What were your emotions when you were doing the mitzvah? What was your thought process? Was your day very difficult? And it was very difficult for you to do that. We know it's more difficult, the more reward you get. There's so many different factors, and again, only God knows about these factors, that come into the, the, the value of the mitzvah. So you could have, technically, two people doing the same exact mitzvah. One of them will get reward a thousand, another one will get reward a million. You have two people equally dressing, equally modest. Yet for some, someone it's easy, and they're going to get, a, let's say, a thousand. And for somebody else, it's very hard, and they're going to get a million. Why? There's different values, different factors that come into play over here. Now, when we take that into consideration, when we take that into our mind, we have to now look at what are you going to work harder for? If someone just gives you something, or if you're actually working for something? Think of it as this explanation, and again, it's a very bad example, but on the other hand, it's a good example. You're a partner in a business. And you want to work on a certain deal. Are you going to work harder or less harder than, let's say, one of your workers who will be making a commission? So again, for both parties, we have your two. We have a partner on one side and we have a worker on the other side. 
Both parties are, it's, it's in their own best interest to make money because they're going to make money on this deal based off commission or based off the audit. But who do you think is going to work harder? Somebody who owns a company, someone's a co-founder for the company, someone that built this company from the ground up, or somebody who just make a little bit of money for it extra because he does it. The answer is hands down, somebody who invested a lot into it, somebody who put a lot into it, it's his company, it's his baby, he's going to go and he's going to work very, very hard to close the deal even more hard than the other person. To the extent, and again, this actually comes into play. Some people that already, you know, the Bochum, they made enough money, so now let the, they'll let the workers. But assuming it's from the ground level up, right? They're going to work very hard who the partners are going to be into it. So when we put this into consideration, and we put into two options that we have. God had an option to give us the Torah, the entire Torah. And we would have gotten the reward, and we, got, we would have done everything. But on the other hand, we would be able to do the same exact thing with so much more of a connection, because we're part of it. All of a sudden, we're doing it. It's us. It's not anymore just God. It's a relationship. I am involved in this. When I'm involved in that, everything that I'm doing is going to be worth so much more. Even, it's even worth it, even that there's going to be arguments. Even there's going to be machlokas. There's going to be one rabbi says this, one rabbi says that. And it's going to be like, oh, why? What's the whole point of this? And the answer is, there's a very, very important point to this. Does that make sense? Good. Okay. Now we have to come to another, another, another idea. What about, and I get this question, this question comes to me, not so often, but every, every once in a while. What if the rabbis made a mistake? It's a good question, right? What if you, what if the rabbis made a mistake? Imagine, imagine the, the, the consequence of that. Imagine, you know, you had the rabbis thousands of years ago, chasu shalom, they made a mistake. For eternity, we're doing the wrong thing. Is that possible? What happens, if it is possible, what is, what, what, what is, uh, what, what happens to us? So the Ron says, like this, he says that the sages rarely, if ever, came to a wrong conclusion. And he goes and he quotes a pasuk in Dvarim, chapter 17, verse 11. It says, You're not allowed to deviate whatever the rabbis tell you, not right and not left. Even so, even if they tell you what's right is left, and what's left is right, you have to listen to them. To so the point is that, says Iran, that it's impossible for any harm to come upon anybody if they go and they listen to the sages. Even if they said something wrong. Again, it's really, or it's like, very unlikely that it will ever happen. That is what the Ran says. The Abar Benel in Parshat Shoftim goes and he strongly, strongly disagrees. He strongly, what does he disagree with the Ran? He says, he rejects his opinion. He says that it's absolutely impossible that the sages ever came to a wrong conclusion. It says, never was and never will be. Never, it's not possible. The sages always came to the right conclusion. How? We're gonna come, we're, we're gonna explain that, uh, you know, shortly. But then we, we have a question. It says, okay, this makes sense. Okay, the sages never came to the right conclusion. Then how do we understand there is certain ideas that seem to be 100% conflicting with each other? How is that possible that they came to the right conclusion if it's, if it's, uh, you know, if, if it's completely conflicting with each other? Again, a question we'll put on the side. We'll get to later. Yeah. I'm asking you, what do you want? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Right now we're talking about the Chachamim, the sages from the time of the Gemara, the time of death. It does, it does factor in for right now as well, but it does factor in. Let's get, let's, let's circle back to that at the end. Because now, so the question is, why, if they were involved, now how does that come into the Mahalukas? Because now you have, let's say two rabbis, each one gets a mathematical equation, a mathematical formula, these 13 ways. And each one has to come out with a conclusion. So it's very likely, and it makes sense that two rabbis, because again, it's not one plus one equals two. 
Oh, excellent question. Very good. So the question is like this. The question is, it says, that's all nice and dandy that the ra- Thank you very much. I forgot to put, to put this inside. That's all very nice. Because what do we say? We said that the, now we're partnership with God. So now we could, uh, we could do things with so much more enthusiasm and get so much, so much uh, more reward. But an excellent question was asked. What's the question? The question is, that's nice and dandy for the rabbis. So they will feel emotionally vested. They came with this. But what about us? Right? What about the plain people? We just follow the rules. What about us? How do we feel emotionally vested to do it? Good question. Thank you for that. So the answer is, is that it's easier for us to relate to a human being, a human understanding, rather than God. So God gives us something, it's beyond our comprehension, why, why, why? But when the rabbis, even though we didn't come to that conclusion, even though we didn't come to that, but we can relate to that on a so much more level because we're part of that relationship. We're same human, we can understand it. And therefore we could go and we're, and we're, and we're still, uh, you know, invested into this, uh, into this, uh, into this, uh, halakha or law, understanding whatever it is that the, the argument is on. Okay? Alright. So now, Let's go on to uh, number number two. Yeah. That's why, right? So it's an excellent question. So yeah, if you, that's why it's very important for people to understand what they're doing, why they're doing it. Some people, th- this is why you have, um, how do you call it, like a dead inside Jewish person, which means is they sort of just go through the motions. You know, they're just like, blah, 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 you know. Ah. Yeah, religious just by like, just by movements, you know? They just like go through the motions. But it's exactly. That's why, that's why we have these classes. That we go and we delve into the depths and try to understand what the basics of what we do, what we do. And this, by the way, is the reason, I don't know if you've been realizing, when we go, let's say, to certain holidays, that's the angle that I try to go on. To try to understand what are we doing it, because then you can get, you can become more vested into it when you understand something, when you could, when you could relate to it more. Um, but yeah, that's very important. And people need to go and people need to understand what they're doing. Uh, and again, you're never gonna understand everything. There's some things that are beyond our grasp, our knowledge. But in general, you could understand and you could get to the level, and the more you learn, the more you understand. And even if you don't, this is the beauty of Emunah. The beauty of emunah and bitachon is that if you don't understand that, but if you have emunah and bitachon, then you'll do it on the same exact, you know, same exact, uh, you know, uh, level. Okay. But anyways, okay. So now we 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 said we we described where machloket could come from. We said that machloket could come from ideas that the rabbis went and expanded on the Torah. Now we have to come to a different. That now we're coming to point number two. Point number two is um, is something called several practices that are legit. And let's explain it like this. So. Bichamai says regarding Shema, it says a person when a person wants to say Shema, at night he has to recline, in the morning he has to stand up. Why? Because it says Bishakbacha Uvkumecha, when you lay down and when you get up. So when you, you lay down you say Shema, when you, that's, that's the way Bichamai says. Bethilad says that you say it as it is. Because it says Uvalechtacha Badech. However you are, that's how you say Shema. So the question is like this, and this is an excellent question. So we have over here two rabbis, two huge rabbis, one saying you say Shema this way, one saying you say Shema this way. An excellent question that should be asked in ev- almost every single machloket is somebody should raise their hand and say, I don't understand. What did they do until now? Why are they asking this question? I mean, the, you know, Judaism has been going on for what? Like thousands of years? Like, what, just ask your grandpa. Hey, you know, what'd you do? You know, like, why do we have arguments? And in fact, we can ask this on every question. And why don't we? Why don't we ask every machloket? They're saying, no, it's like this, no, it's like this. When do we see the machloket? We have it in the time of, of, the, of the Mishnah. We have the time of the Gemara. Just, you know, look what granddaddy did, and that's it. And, you know, that's, you're finished, and that's where you have it. So, well, let's look at the Gemara in Barchot, page 2a. Barchot says, like this, says, When do we start, When do we start and we read Shema at night? When do we read Kiyat Shema at night? And they give different opinions. The Chachamim say that you say that you have until Chatzot, there's two out of three opinions. And Rabbi Gamil says you have until Alot HaShachar, you have, Amud HaShachar, you have until, until dawn. 
And then, you know, Rabbi Gamil says, says really, the rabbis, so the rabbis say until midnight. So the question is, until when do you have to say, to say Shema at night? So the rabbis say until midnight, the um, Rabbi Gamil says you have until dawn. Rabbi Gamil then goes and explains to his sons and says, listen, the rabbis, they really agree with me. They really agree that you have until dawn. But why did they say until midnight? Because they didn't want people to wait until midnight and then they're going to forget and then whatever. So better we tell them until, dawn, until midnight and then they're going to have to do it and then they don't have to wait and so on and so forth. But really there was no, uh, there was no argument. But really, the, the idea of how did this even come into bed? So according to that interpretation, there's not really an argument. They're just saying two different opinions. One saying you have to be more careful. One says no, let's go according to the letter of the law. But there is something called the drash. The, the way that we, we could explain it in a different way. When it says that you're supposed to lay down. So the Torah says, Bishach Bechad, you lay down. Now the question is, this is, we have to expound. We have to say, okay, what does it mean, Bishach, when you lay down, when you go to sleep? Does it mean, A, when, you, when everybody goes to sleep? What happens, so let's say everybody goes to sleep at 11 o'clock. Let's say you have people that go to sleep at 2 o'clock. So what do you, who's this, when do you say Shema? When did that? Or maybe it says when you go to sleep, so maybe it means when you are asleep. So maybe it means the whole night. So you have different rabbis that came with different opinions. They said, okay, that means this, it means this, it means this. But in essence, what happened was, before the, before, you know, the way that, that Judaism, you know, in the beginning, the way that it was, was that you had rabbis of certain cities. And one rabbi, maybe it could be depending on the cost, depending on the, on, on let's say the, that's a word that I'm looking for, the, lifestyle of that particular community. They go to sleep very early. Right? Florida, right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so they go to sleep, you know, you know, Florida, right? It's, a, it's like left the blinker is always on for the entire duration of the drive. Right? So let's say, let's say you have one community go to sleep very early. Another community goes to sleep very late. So the rabbi of one community goes to sleep early says, when do you have to say? You have to say it right in the beginning because that's what it means that everyone goes to sleep. Another rabbi says, no, 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 listen, everybody here goes to sleep, but you have a time over here. So you have different rabbis that went based on their community. And what would be the halakha? The halakha is very simply, each one goes according to his rabbi. And it's both okay. It's both legitimate answers. It's okay if you want to do it over here, and it's okay if you want to do it this way. You have rabbi that supports you over here, rabbi supports you over here. But then came a time when the Jewish people were starting to go into exile. And now it's no longer okay for a rabbi here, rabbi there. A Jew has to feel comfortable. Wherever he's going to go in the world, he's going to follow the same, the same laws. Granted, customs are always going to be a little bit different, but the laws are going to, give me a second, the laws are always going to be more or less the same. So, so, the rabbi, so the rabbi says, now we have to unify. This is why the, after the destruction of the second temple, where people are getting exiled, it was time to unify the laws. And this is all of a sudden, we have all these different machloket beforehand, it didn't matter. This one rabbi says, this rabbi says, it didn't really matter, but now we have to unify. Let's go through a few different examples, and then I'll get your, uh, then you get your question. Rabbeinu Nisim, in his commentary to Rosh Hashanah, page 34a, he cites Rabbi Haigoyen, and he says, uh, over there brings a, a case of uh, different ways of sounding the shofar. There's different ways of sounding the, the shofar. So, you had, uh, you know, there was like one, one, let's say, city that sounded a shofar a certain way. Another city sounded a shofar a certain way. And Rabbi Avol came and says, now we're going to combine both practices into one. So they asked Rabbi Haigoyen, and he says, is it possible? He says, why are we combining it? We're not sure. He says, maybe, maybe it was really one way. Is it possible that for a long period of time, a certain city did not, did not actually complete the halacha of actually blowing the shofar the right way? Is it, maybe they messed up for so long. How do we know they did it right? So Rabbi Haigoyen says, no, no, no. He says, really, both ways of blowing the shofar are equally correct. They're equally okay. The tuah is good over here. The tuah is good over here. It doesn't matter the way that they, the way they both expounded the right way. And it's both equally halachically 100% acceptable. But rather only the time came Rabbi Huda Nasi. It came to unify it, and that's why they came and they combined both of them together. We have the same idea with tefillin. 
Tefillin, we know there's Tefillin of Rashi and Tefillin of Rabbeinu Tam. So all the majority of the details, we said there's no machloket in it. There's no machloket in the, in the details of, of Tefillin. Everyone says that it's black, everyone says it's four pashat in the shalosh, there's one pashat in the shalosh, everyone says that it's square. There's no, but yet there is a certain machloket, we know, between Rashi and Rabbeinu Tam. What's the big machloket over here? The big machloket is, so in the shalosh, well, there's, 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 one of the main parts, in shalosh there's four passages that it's written inside in four compartments. The question between Rashi and, and, and Rabbeinu Tam was, which is the order that they go in? They both have the same things, and it's not even all of them, it's just the first two. Do they swap it or do they do that? That's, that's pretty much the bulk of the machloket that we have over here. So wait for it, aren't there people who put on the two prayers? Yes, on yeah. The Shulchan are... No, so they... No, they'll put it on for one part of davening, then they'll take it off, and they'll put the other part for the second part of davening. So they'll start off with Rashi, and then they'll finish off with Rabbeinu Tam. The, the Shulchan Aruch came with a, the, the, gave us a final maskana that says the halacha goes according to Rashi. So it goes according to Rashi, that's what everyone does according to Rashi. Some people go and they put on two. They'll put on Rabbeinu Tam, and they'll put on, and they'll put on, uh, Rashi. Uh, but both of them were equally correct. Now the question we could ask at the same time is, this was a very simple thing. This is something physical. Just go and open up your grandfather's feeling and see what the right way was. See what the right way was. Go look at it. Why do we have a question? Why is there machloket between Rashi and why is there machloket between Rabbeinu Tam? We should just go and look at what they did until now and that's it. And that's the way that we should do it. And the answer was because both were equally correct. Both, you could do it this way, you could do it that way. It was both 100% all accurate. And in fact, when... Um, when they went and they, and they went through archaeological evidence from the time of the second temple, they found feeling both going, satisfying both opinions. One from Rashi and one from Rabbeinu Tam, because they were both alright. Granted, now we have to unify the practice. Come to Shulchan Ochan says we go according to, uh, we're going to according to Rashi. The same thing with Tzitzit. You know, the Machloket, is it three strings, is it four strings? Obvious questions, what are you talking about? Just go look at your own Tzitzit. Like, how did it come until now? The answer was, it was two. There was two versions. You could do it either three, and you could either do the four, and it will be both be equally binding. Now we have the halacha, we have the shulchan halacha, now we go according to those, uh, those uh, halachot. So when we're looking at machloket, we're looking at it, we're saying, okay, look at this, must, one must be wrong. Not necessarily. Not necessarily must one be wrong. It's very possible, it's very likely, they were both correct. And the answer was, it depends. Who do we pass tonight, now that we have to unify it? Yeah. Well, the main argument isn't the right term, but they're both correct, then wouldn't, like, arguments usually... <clears throat> Arguments doesn't mean, so, so when, when, let's say a husband and wife had an argument, um, and one says, yes, I win, really, they both lose, right? So in every case, an argument in itself doesn't mean that one is right inherently and one is wrong inherently. Usually an argument could mean that either, you know, both are wrong or both are right. So in the ways of a marriage, both are usually wrong. In a way of, uh, well, technically speaking, usually the men, of course we know, uh, you know, men are taught this. The second, you know, the first thing you say is just, I'm sorry, you know, and just move on with life. Uh, but, um, but, it, but in essence, you could also both be right. It's, so you you have both, but it could still be an argument. You had a question? Yeah, I don't understand why it's okay that it's two different opinions that they're both right. If it's only, the, like, halakha is one thing and they're translated two different ways, how are they both right? Because, okay. because when, when God gave the, the, the ways, the method to expand the Torah, He gave it on, you know, knowing full well that there's going to be two different interpretations that could come out from it. That is the, the, oh, because when you're dealing it, when you're dealing with, with ideas, like, it, that's why I said mathematical equation is not the best idea, because mathematics is only one answer. But when you're putting in philosophical ideas and understandings and different things like that, it's very common that two people will come to, you know, slightly different conclusions. And again, you don't have major differences. 
you know, you're talking about, let's say, tefillin. It's a difference of the version. Everybody agrees on the majority of it. It's just a different version. Do you say this way? Do you say that way? Again, these things are not huge technical differences. It's differences. And you have to follow according to the Shulchan Aruch that told us which way we have to go according to. But it's still very likely and very common ground that would make sense that you would come to two different, uh, two different conclusions. Think of it this way. You're taking a test in, uh, you know, whatever, college, whatever it is. And part of the test is you have to write an essay. Now, it's very likely that two people will write two completely different things and they'll both be 100% correct. And that's just why. Because people come from their own ideas. They come from their own angles. So it's very likely that they'll both be correct. Make sense? Yeah, but not as much people are following that person's essay. Like, now these are two different opinions that a bunch of people are following in a different way. Okay, so? Let's say these two people are the geniuses of the world. So now you're going to have it, right? Do you put the baby on his back or do you put the baby on his stomach? I don't know. I guess you guys are not on mothers. Oh, so someone have, but I don't know what other uh, they, uh, Well, it depends on the, t- of the year. You know, in 2016, the answer was one. 2017, the answer was it. No, because it says suffocation, this or that. There's all different, you know. Like when you're dealing with anything in expertise, you'll always have two different opinions, and it's okay. And that's, you know. That's true. That does change. So that's not a good example. Okay. All right, let's move on because we have, we have a lot to uh, uh, cover. Okay, so now. That, that is point number two. Point number three is something called Elu Elu Elokim Chaim. This is a very, very important, and now we can begin to understand what this means. What it means is like this. This is a Gemara in Arab, page 13b. I'm sorry, I apologize. It's a little boring. <laughs> okay, I'm kidding. I shouldn't have called it. I am sorry. Okay, I don't know. I don't know. These things... things and you know what it is? People that you want to insure, and they should get more reward, because they are even more tired. And I'm not joking. I'm serious. So... Um, I feel like we should move on because but, but we can't, yeah, just keep on rolling. Okay, and action, take two. Okay, so now, um, so some things, I, you know, I do. I know I suffer from, it's a disease called word vomit. Um, I think things, my mouth just says things before I'll be like, you know, there is a stop sign in me, but he's not strong at all. In my, I just push him away very easily. I just, all right, that's okay. There we go, so we good. So, but it's on someone else's expense, so I'm sorry. In front of everybody, I'm asking you, Michila. So, um, you should know, if somebody asks me, you have to say your mochel, not just, it's okay. Okay, very good. Okay. Alright. Um, Alright, let's continue, shall we? Okay, and action, take three. Okay, so now, the Gemara Nehavim. The Gemara Nehavim, page 13b, says like this. It says that Beis Shammai and Beis Hel, they argued for three years. And one says, Allah is like this. One says, like Allah is like this. You know, and then it says that a batko came out. And says, Elu elu These and these are the words of God. Now the question is, well, I don't understand. If one rabbi says pure, and the other rabbi says impure, how can you tell me that these and these are the words of God? One must be wrong. If you're telling me pure, and you're telling me impure, one has to be wrong. They can't both be correct. And the answer is, so we'll give you two answers. Number one, Rabbi Shal Salanta and Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner says, what does it mean that Elu elu That these and these are the words of the living God? Meaning that these and these are both legitimate for studying Torah. Because if you think about it, who should you, what Torah should you study? When you're studying Torah, you should study what? You should study things that are the halakha. The bottom line, what do we have to do? Should you study the wrong person's opinion? Like the person that we don't, I shouldn't say wrong, the person that we don't follow? And then it says, Rabbi Zalzan, it says, says, Rabbi Yitzhak, that yeah, these are both legitimate. These are both legitimate ways to study Torah. You can study it from both, from both angles. Number two is, um, when we say, is answer based off what we gave. It says, they're both correct. They both have an answer, both saying correct. They could both go one way, they could both go the other way, and yet it goes according to the, according to the majority, according to the majority view. And the fact is, a Midrash. There's a Midrash, and I believe it's in, in, uh, Tehillim. The Midrash in Tehillim says that, 
when Moshe Rabbeinu went up to heaven, and God told him the midrash to him, yeah, he said he gave him, uh, gave him a certain case, and then he gave him forty nine reasons why, uh, let's call it impure, and forty nine reasons why it's pure. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, let's, you know, let's answer. And you know, God says the rabbis let the majority decide it. So from the beginning, it was very likely and very possible that a certain case, a certain scenario, could both equally be impure and pure, and it depends on what the rabbis come in to say. And what? Well, let's, we're going to get to these examples. We're going to get off. Uh, so what's the conclusion? You can follow. That's what it says. Uh, that's why it says in the Torah specifically, You have to follow according to the majority of the rabbis. And, ha- and that is going to be according to the divine opinion. That is going, God is going to make it. Yeah. yeah, you can follow according to that. Even though both are correct, you still have to follow according to, uh, according to that, uh, that opinion. Okay, the question. Let's, let's hold on the questions for a second. Let's get a little bit and then we'll, we'll do all the questions. I'm, I'm assuming that I, I realize it's getting a little bit late, so I want to get that so, uh, to the end of it and then we'll open up questions as long as we need. Or as long as I want. No, I'm just kidding. As long as I need. Um, that, okay. Now the question is, what, when we wrote the, when we wrote the, the Gemara, now I say we, like I can even begin to even, you know, scratch the surface of the, Dirt of the dirts of the dirt of dirt, but when the when the when the holy rabbis, when the awesome rabbis, when they wrote the Gemara, when they wrote the Mishnah, why did they put in machloket? Why did they put this rabbi says this, this rabbi says that, and now we're going to come into the final conclusion? Just tell us the final opinion. Why do we need to know the wrong opinion? Let us just know the right opinion. And the answer is because then it could come a time in the future. It could be a few years. It could be many years afterwards, where a reputable, you know, righteous man says, "I didn't understand." He says, "I know. I heard from my rabbi or from my thing that the halacha does not go like what you said." He says, "How do we know? Because if the rabbis would have just gave us just the right halacha, then what would happen when someone very reputable, a righteous man, says, "No, it doesn't make sense. This, this is wrong." So now that we have the wrong opinion, the wrong opinion actually helps us establish a right opinion. Because then we'll say, yeah, yeah, that wrong opinion is in the Gemara. We know about this wrong opinion. This, it's not wrong opinion, this is the opinion of that. But we don't go according to that. That's not the majority rule of view. That's not the way that we paskin. We paskin according to this thing, and that's how we're going with it. So even when you learn the wrong, it actually, it's not the wrong. Wrong is that even when you're wrong, if you learn the other, it actually enhances your ability to understand the correct one. And hence, Elu Elu both versions are correct. Because even when you learn things that are not, it's still going to help you understand the things that are, that are correct. There's also another idea in it. And that idea is um, that when a teacher said something, back in the time, uh, you know, in the Chachamim, we had that the teacher said something vague, which means is that you could understand it in more than one way. Now, we'll have to understand, like, why would the teachers do that? Like, why would they say something in a vague way? And we know that in Psachim, page 3b, and in Chulin, page 63b, it says, the Olam Adam A person should always teach his student a shorthand manner, like in, in very concise, in according to concise manner. Why? Number one, it saves time, it's very efficient. Number two, it also makes that person think. So, you know, it's, it's, they'll give you information, but you need to have prerequisite information to it, to it. For example, you walk into, you know, medical school, and you go to, you know, a third year medical, you know, course, and you're gonna sit over there, and you know nothing about nothing, the, the teacher is gonna start throwing out jargon, like things that you have no idea what's going on over there. And you're all, like, you can say, I don't know what's going on, but rather you have to have a lot of prerequisite information. The teacher doesn't have to go through all that information again, because you already know it. So, but what does that do to the, to the students in that class? They have to constantly remember the molecular chemistry level, they have to remember so many different things, so it keeps them, it keeps them sharper, it keeps them on their wits, it keeps them, uh, um, you know, more, more, uh, um, I guess sharper would be the best word for, for, to use it. So, sometimes the, the rabbis even went to extent and gave them wrong information. There's Gemara in Zavachim, page 12b, that says Rav Huna went and he declared a certain halakha, and he says the source for this halakha is something called the Kaiserah. Kaiserah means it was an extra word indicating the Torah, indicating a teaching. 
Then the, word, the, the students objected. So no, no, it doesn't make sense. There's no Kali Yisrael here. So he says, you know what? Okay, fine. The answer is, it's really a Kal B'chomer. So then they objected again for this. They said, no, it doesn't make sense. It's not a Kal B'chomer. And then finally he says, okay, we have this teaching going back to the time of Yavne. So they asked him, he says, you know, you had no, you had no thing to back up. Why did you say that? Why did you say you had a scripture to back it up? Why did you say Kal B'chomer if you knew that it wasn't like that? And he said, the reason that he said it was to sharpen the students' minds. It was a point to sharpen the student's mind. When you're going, uh, let's say, um, you know, let's use the medical, you know, as an example. Somebody, uh, there, you have a, uh, you know, a medical professor is, uh, doing a surgery. And he has a bunch of students around him. And he's gonna tell the students, I'm gonna cut open this person over here, and we're gonna go around from this angle, and we're gonna extract over here. Now he's telling them something very wrong. He's saying that that should not be there. There's an artery there, if you cut over there, that's gonna bleed to death. He wants the students to go, no, 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 wait, you can't do that way, you're gonna have that artery, you're gonna miss that artery, you're gonna cut it over there, you're gonna destroy it, you're gonna, you're gonna kill the person, you're gonna bleed out. He says, ah, very good. Okay, what happens if I go this way? So it's very, it makes sense that the teacher would want to present wrong information to see how you're gonna respond. Do you know, keep you on your toes, make sure that you're following it. To the extent, that you have to understand that one of the goals of teaching Torah is not only to teach the bottom line. This is what you need to do. Rather, what it even is sometimes even more important is how do we get to where we got to. You have to know the basics, the foundation to know how we got to where we got to. And sometimes it's even it's so important that it's worth it to go and say something vague. And remember, when you say something vague, it's possible that if it wasn't clarified, two students two, uh, two students say, well, the rabbi meant this. And I'll say, the rabbi meant this. And I'll say, the rabbi is no longer alive. So machloket could also come out from this way, when the rabbi would say something that is, uh, that is vague. And this would open up the door uh, to machloket. There is also, we spoke about this, um, I don't know, last class or two classes ago, regarding the Agadatah, the Gemara, the, the stories in the Gemara, that it's not, it, it's like stories. And you would think, okay, this is what the stories means. Really, there's a lot of deep meanings behind it. And in fact, many stories in the, in the Gemara that you think, let's say you have one angel speaking to another human being. Not always does it mean what it actually says. There's actually a lot of deep underlining, you know, ideas behind this and you shouldn't take it literally or you should take it literally. It depends on the story. It depends on what you need to do it. Now, why did they do it this way? Again, they kept it very deep. Why? Number one, to keep the students on their toes. So, you know, and number two, which is even more important, was it, this information is not for everybody. There's a lot of deep Kabbalistic secrets that are hidden in the, hidden in the Gemara in the stories. And it's not meant for everybody to do it. So somebody who's just going and just reading the Gemara straight through is not going to understand the depths of it. They're not going to understand the ideas that what's really the, the Gemara is talking about. And this is where sometimes you will have something, and I use this word very carefully, seemingly contradictions. Because you see the rabbi say something over here, you see the rabbi say something, ah, it's a contradiction. When you read it like that, when you read it the basis, but when you understand that the, the, what, what we're dealing with is a lot deeper, then sometimes what you think is a contradiction is not really a contradiction. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it isn't. But how do you know that? You have to actually, in order to really know if there's a real contradiction, you have to really go down to the bottom, you know, the foundations of the Torah. You have to really know what's going on over there. You can't just briefly, you know, coarsely read it over and accept to understand that this is a contradiction over here, this is a contradiction over here. I have, a, um, you know, I've, I have many times that people um, go and they uh, they send me contradictions in, in the in, in let's say in the in the psukim, and those things majority of the time, first of all, if you just translate it correctly, there's no contradiction. If you want to go a step further, you read Rashi, and that would answer most of your of your contradictions. But yeah, what people do, people go and they read it in a very very just like blame you know just like you know coarsely glance. They go to some you know. I don't know, I don't know, it's, it's such a shame because when somebody goes and type, types in on, on the internet, on Google, uh, Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, the first thing that comes up is Christian websites. And in fact, majority of them come up as Christian websites. I'm assuming they pay to, to, you know, to put it over there. So you have Bible Hub and you have all these other Christian websites that come up over there. You think they're giving the literal translation? You think they're giving the good translation? They're giving the translation that would make sense to them. So they read it and then they read something else and be like, aha, contradiction in the Torah. I'm like, where did you read this? 
You read it where that belongs in the toilet. That belongs. That, that's not even. A, that's not. A, forget about even a good interpretation. That's not even basic on this interpretation. They change everything. So sometimes when you see contradictions, not only is it a contradiction. Sometimes it's it's different. I had um, somebody recently send me a um, a link to an Islamic website, um, and then FBI. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, so it was it was uh, it was you know came from the Islamic point of view that um, of contradictions in the Torah. And they listed, like, I don't know, a hundred and something contradictions in the Torah. And I looked for the first, like, three, and I'm like, I'm not even going to answer this. I'm like, originally they wanted me to do a whole class on these contradictions, and I said, there's no point. I'm like, because if you just read the right translation, there's no contradiction. Of course, it's a, you know, if you start changing everything, of course you can make it into a contradiction. Majority of the stuff is not even nothing even talking about. So you have a lot of people, especially this is, we should bring it up in Bible criticism, when people go and they critique the Torah, so do you know what you're talking about? Or are you somebody who just decides to like, you know, a blogger who decides to go and look up, uh, you know, one verse over here and one verse over here and be like, aha, contradiction. You know what you're talking about? You know, you were dealing with over here something that is extremely deep. It's something that you can't understand always on a superficial level. You have to understand the levels of it, the depths of it. There is also uh, another point that of uh, forgetting. Is it possible that you could forget the halachot? And the answer is yes. It says that Yeshua, in the Gemara, in the Gemara says in Tumor, page 16a, that Yeshua forgot laws. Yeshua forgot. Why did he forget laws? Yeshua forgot laws because when Moshe Rabbeinu was about to pass away, he says, do you have any hardships with any laws? And Yeshua gave not the most humble answer. He says, no, I'm, I don't have any, any, uh, any difficulties. I, I know everything. So because of that, he, lost, he, he, forgot, he forgot some laws. And by the way, we'll soon have to get back. To, we'll, we'll soon have to answer this. So, you know, he, could, he spoke to God. Why didn't he just speak to God? And he answered, Loba Shemayi. The Torah is not in heaven. We're going to answer this. Put that on the side. We'll be to get to that in, uh, in a few minutes. So, when... Um, you know, it is possible that we would forget laws, but it's not such a problem, and we'll and and we'll we'll soon see why. But the majority, and, and bear with me, this because we're going to go and explain this. When we say the law is forgotten, what does it mean? The law is forgotten. Law is forgotten means that usually, a majority of the time, means that you have opinion A and you have opinion B, two correct opinions, like we said, or two. You know, most of the time it's correct opinions. And yet, what was forgotten? Or forgotten was there a consensus that came together? Did we come to a conclusion and say this one's correct, this one's not correct? Did we come? That was what was for, was forgotten. But in essence, the um, the the you know the the problem is not so problematic. Why? So let's look for example. Example is Pesach, a sacrifice. So we know when you have to make a korban Pesach, which is on Elif Pesach. This, if it's Shabbat, it overrides Shabbat, which means that you could do it even on Shabbat. Now, this law was forgotten. And the question is, how was it, how was it forgotten? Why was it such a problem that it was forgotten? Because every 14 years, well, at least once in every 14 years, Shabbat will fall out on Elif Pesach. Which means is that you don't have to look back so long ago to figure out what was the law. What was the law? What did they do 14 years ago? People can remember what happened 14 years ago. Ask any woman, right? They remember, especially if it deals with the husband. They remember everything since day one. Um, and... Uh, <clears throat> I know for a man, the last thing that he wants to hear is, what did, we, what did I wear on the first date? I don't remember what we went on the first date. Like, you know, like, yeah. uh, you know, dress and shoes. You know. yeah. yeah. So, um, but the idea is, is that when you're, you know, the, the rabbis, they would be able to remember it. 14 years, 14, you could remember that. What was the question? What was forgotten? And the answer was, was forgotten was, we knew there was both opinions. We were allowed to do it, you were not allowed to do it. But the question was, what did we come into the conclusion? Did, are we supposed to do it? Are we not supposed to do it? That conclusion we can uh, come to forget. But however, the reason why this is not a major consequence is we know that it says in the Torah, it says in Devarim, in uh, Leviticus, 
No, in Deuteronomy, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 9, it says, You have to go to the judge who is in those days. Which means is you have to deal with whoever is in your days, the rabbis of your days, that's who you go according to. And whatever, to the extent was that even if there were opinions that were different in previous years, the rabbis have the authority, again, there's a lot of different details, there's greater number and so on and so forth. The rabbis have the authority to go and overrule certain laws that happened previously to go to a different, a different conclusion. Bear with me with that. The um, the Gemara in Rosh Hashanah, page twenty five B, says like this. It says Bedan Bedor ke Aaron Bedor Yiftach Bedor ke Shmuel Bedor. It says also Yerovel Bedor ke Moshe Bedor. The rabbis of this generation are like the great rabbis of the previous generations. So it means is, is if they say something, you follow them just like you would have followed it if it would have been in the previous uh, previous generation. The so the idea is that even if we have any of these issues, laws are forgotten. There's a machlok. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect us in any which way or form. Because, why? Because we go according to the majority of rabbis now. And now. But, 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 a very, very big but. The rabbis nowadays do not have the authority, do not have the power to overturn anything that happened in the Gemara, anything that happened in the Mishnah. In fact, in the Shulchan Aruch, we also, these details, we don't, we don't, uh, we don't, we don't argue upon it. This is the things that, uh, but prior to this, they had the authority to go and change it. So even if something was forgotten, even, and again, this didn't happen, often at all, but even if something did come to that, it doesn't, practically doesn't have any differences in our, uh, you know, doing the mitzvot. What's very interesting is that uh, when you look at uh, Bet Shammai, in a few minutes we're going to be done, Bet Shammai and Bet Hillel, the, um, the halakha goes according to, anybody know? Hillel, right. Who was sharper? Does anybody know? Shammai. Why was it, go, why, so why did we go according to Hillel? Anybody know? What? Not only stricter. What? Pleasant, very good. Humility, he was humble. Hillel was humble, he was pleasant. So let me ask you a question. We're dealing with law. We're dealing with, with what you need to do, right or wrong. You have two candidates. One is intellectual abilities are much greater, and one is very humble. Who are you going to choose? Who do you think is going to be the correct? The one who's intellectually smarter, or the one who's more humble? And again, intellectually smarter is not the right word, but let's use it that, because, you know, Lahavza, we, we can't. But, you know, as an example, who do you use? Use somebody who's intellectually in a higher level. So why are we going to according to Hillel? According to Hillel, yes, he was more humble. He did. He was very nice. And yes, that's why he's doing it. He's not doing it. He's doing it for the right reason. Well, no, they both did it for the right reason. No, Even, I get it, but like he's really looking out for you. I don't know. Like, he's like, I got you. Like, come on, you know, don't worry about it. Yeah, you know, I'll take care of you. Yeah, shorts. Don't worry about it. You know, like whatever. You know. Between me, I'll tell with God. Don't worry, I'll be your lawyer. You know. By the way, if any rabbi nowadays tell you that, say you know, you ask something that's on the fence and you really not do it, and he says you want, you're allowed to do it, and he says, don't worry, I'll be your rabbi. I'll be, I'll take care of you in the next world. Uh, run very far away because he will take you in the next world, take care of you in the next world, but it's not going to be in the good place. Um, so, but in essence, we have to come back and we have to look at it. Why is it that the halacha went according to Hillel? And the answer is is that there is an aspect, when the rabbis came in, and the rabbis made a decision, there is an aspect of divine assistance that came into play. There was a divine uh, you know, assistance. The, the Bet Hillel were patient, so much so the Bet Hillel, when they said their halakha, they didn't say their halakha first, they said first the person that argues with them. They said Bet Shammai's argument first, and then they said what they said. They were pleasant, they were very humble, they went out of their way to go into level of humility. What do you think gets better divine assistance? Get the better divine power? So somebody who is humble, we know there's a very prerequisite, you know, a very prerequisite to get, to get in a high level, is humility. Very hard thing to, to accomplish now. Um, especially for people that say that they are humble. Um, it's very, very difficult and it's something that everybody needs to work on. But humility is a prerequisite to going to having the divine assistance. So now it makes sense why the ra- why God says the halacha goes according to, uh, according, that's why we go according to uh, Bet Hillel. Well, if that's to realize, when the rabbis are going in this, where do they get this divine assistance? They have to have this self-sacrifice. They have to go into this for the right way for lishma. If a rabbi goes into this just for the intellectual stimulation, if a rabbi goes into this just to feel smart, just to... Did the, I just say that? 
Oh, okay, so, but they were both correct. I'm not saying that this is Bechamai. I'm saying this is. Uh, I'm saying this is way a method. Yes, yeah, so then you're correct. You are right. Yes. Okay. <laughs> you go for it. Okay. Um, so the and, and this, by the way, the the more intellectual, um, the more intellectual stimulated that the the the, the go. I'll give you an example of this. You have the Talmud Babli and Talmud Yerushalmi. You have the Babylonian Talmud and then you have the Jerusalem Talmud. We go according to the Babylonian Talmud. Because the Babylonian Talmud, there was, and if you look at the riff and the rush in uh, the end of Erevin, they go and explain like this. They say that one of the reasons is because, that we go according to the Babylonian because there was a lot more exertion, a lot more effort that went into the Babylonian Talmud. There was a lot more divine, and then we could say, we could extend it to say that the divine assistance was, was extended also over there. But now we have to go, clear so far? Good? So far so good. Okay, good. Now, um, the, the idea that we said before, that if I'm telling you right now, that there's divine assistance. We just said before that the Torah is not in heaven. It says, Lo To the extent that we said, let's repeat the story that we said before, that Yehoshua, Yehoshua went and he forgot certain halachot, and the Jewish people said, okay, go ask God. And he says, no, Lo The Torah is not more anymore in heaven, we have to deal with it right here, and that's going to be the halacha. That's what God told us to do, and that's what we need to do. The question is, if I'm now telling you that it's Lo that it's no longer in heaven, then how is it possible that we get divine assistance? It's conflicting. First I'm telling you, it's only, you know, it's only in this world. Now I'm telling you, okay, but if you go this way, you get divine assistance. What, what's the divine assistance here needed? So we have to go and we have to understand Ruach HaKodesh, right? So how do we get Ruach HaKodesh, right? Take a pen and paper, right? No, this is instruction, right? Take a tomato and crush the onions, right? So, oh, very good. So, yeah, we can get to that. The Rivka, when um, she was going, uh, not you, sorry. Um, when uh, Rivka Imenu. So when she was, um, uh, when she was, when she was, was, uh, have a problem with the, children inside her stomach, she was going past one way and they were kicking, they were going past an impure place and they were kicking. So she went over to Shaman Ever and Shaman Ever went and they said that you have two nations that are with you, they have two children. How do they see it? They have a sonogram machine going over there, this is going to feel a little cold, you know, this is a new thing, you know, and they put this on. How do they come to, how do they figure it out? And they knew it through Ruach HaKodesh, they knew it through divine inspiration. The um, Rivka, in Belshit in Genesis chapter 27 verse 42, it says, Rivka was told the thoughts of Esav, her son. She understood that Esav wanted to go and kill Yaakov. That's what she told Yaakov, go run away. How did she know this? How did she know this information? She knew it through Ruach HaKodesh. So, Ruach HaKodesh, we can think of it as like a, uh, a sixth sense. Um, something that you would be able to see something that is not yet here. Even so much so that you could be able to see the future. And, uh, you know, Rabbi Chaim Kanievsky writes and says, even in the time of the Grah, even in the time of the Chavetz Chaim, they spoke about things that they didn't, there's no way that they could have known about. They spoke about things in the future. The Ramchal writes that the Torah leaders of every generation reach a level of Ruach HaKodesh. The Nodavi Yehuda writes that the majority of the Torah that we have today was through Ruach HaKodesh. In fact, it says the entire Talmud was written through Ruach HaKodesh. Rabbi Yonason Eipschitz goes and says that the Shulchan Arach and the Ramah, the Halacha that we have nowadays, is also written through Ruach HaKodesh. So now we have to understand what is the Ruach HaKodesh. So says the Ramchal, in Mesil Yisharim, that it says that if you work on your character, you'll be able to reach a level of Ruach HaKodesh. Now what's Ruach HaKodesh? Ramchal in Derech Hashem goes and explains. He says like this, says I'm going to quote you, it is an inspiration that comes from above that enables one to understand an idea in its entirety with perfect clarity. Additionally, it could give some, it could give one the ability to understand ideas that are not within your, your, normal human ability, such as seeing the future. 
So we see over here from the Ramchal, there are two aspects to Ruach HaKodesh. Number one, understanding an idea in its entirety. And number two, is seeing something that's beyond the scope of human ability, which is seeing the future. When we're dealing the Midrash that says that, for example, Shem Ve'eva, he saw that there were two children. He, or Rivka, that she knew the thoughts of her, of her, uh, of her, of her son, that was gonna kill her other son. Where does this, what type of Ruach HaKodesh is this? This is Ruach HaKodesh and seeing the future, seeing something beyond. But when we're talking about when the rabbis, when the Talmud, when the, uh, when, when you have the Shulchan Aruch was written, what type of Ruach HaKodesh we're talking about here, divine assistance that gives you the idea, the subject, with such clarity that everything just makes perfect sense. That's the level that we're dealing with uh, with, uh, Ruach Hashem, uh, with uh, Ruach HaKodesh. The Stipe says in Chai Alam that, that uh, in every generation there are 36 people that, that receive divine inspiration that see this, this uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, at a daily thing. So even in our generations, you have these cases. And we spoke about previous stories that we have. We don't have time to go through stories. But we spoke about stories that we had that, you know, I said personally that I went to certain rabbis that definitely knew stuff that they had no way of knowing. Things that are obviously something beyond the, the scope. Okay, so let's do a quick, uh, let's do a quick uh, uh, a recap over here. What we have over here. We have over here number one. What is Machloket about? We said Machloket majority of the time is of minor details, or rear details, or details that are just, you know, minimal of, of the idea. But the majority of things is we don't have Wachakotis. Even though, by the way, you open up the Gemara, it's all, it's all Machloket. But you look at that, what's the bottom of the Machloket? They're not arguing of the majority of the things. They're arguing of certain details, and that certain detail could take pages and pages of the Gemara that's arguing in it. Overall, in Judaism, we don't have, the majority is not, is not Machloket. Number two, what are we arguing? What is it arguing about? It's not arguing about received laws, it's arguing about derived laws. Number three, the, the, even though they're arguing in it, it doesn't mean one is wrong as one is correct. We said there are several practices, and each one is 100% correct, but when the time came to unify Judaism, when, Jude, when Jewish people are going into exile, they're going through all over the world, there came a time that we need to go and unify it. Say the halacha goes like this, so everybody knows exactly what we need to do. That's when we unified it, but not that one person was wrong, one person was right. And there was something that I didn't, that I forgot to mention. That is, the question is that why was there a different opinion? Somebody asked this, you know, in a certain point of mind, and I don't know why this completely slipped my mind to answer it. So, why is it that we have different customs? Why is it that we have different ideas in different parts of the world? So when we do when we do something, when we do a mitzvah, it fixes not it only not only gives us the power of, of the mitzvah, but it also fixes the surrounding area. It, you, you you fix the area that you are in in the world so much so, and that's why a lot of you know the holy rabbis tell us that the Jewish people had to go through all different parts of the world. There are certain sparks of kedusha that had to go be and uh, yeah, they had to go and had to go be dealt with them. How do we go and fix it? Again, it's through majority through the mitzvah that we have to do through learning the Torah. So now when we look at it, it says it makes perfect sense of why there are different parts of the world that, meet, that may need slightly different variations of different things to get that thing out. And this is where we could say there are different customs that came out there, isn't it? There's different things that came into it, there's different customs that came to it, there different laws, because the, the, the bottom line, the Allah more or less stays the same. But this part of the world needs a little bit of a, <coughs> this over here. And this part of the world needs a little bit of change over here. So this is why even though we see the different customs, different ideas, but in essence it's all part of one bigger picture and there's a need for that to happen uh, that way. We also said that even though the rabbis are coming and they're introducing these ideas, it's, we said according to the Rabbi Arminel, never possible for them to actually make a mistake. And according to the Ran, even if they did make a mistake, it's never going to harm you in any, uh, in any way. And besides that, we know that the rabbis have divine assistance. They have divine guidance from God to go and direct to the right, uh, to the right halacha. So now we have, uh, you know, either we open up for questions or we go through, uh, which might take me a few minutes, through the uh, 13 ways of expounding the Torah. Or, Okay, questions then. All right. Okay. Um, so is, that, is this like the same answer to why there's different, like why Sephardim is different things and why Per se. Per se. Technically, a lot of, a lot, not everything, because... What's contradiction? Then that, what? Head covering is a big controversy. 
head covering is not a, it's, um, head covering the, 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 I, I do not want to get into shaitals, especially with Sephardim and, and Ashkenazim, um, but the head covering, you do, yeah, you do have to, well, it depends, you know, Chamavadya Yosef, yes, you know, there's, whatever, there's different bands, I don't want to get to all the, the halachot over here, definitely ask your local Orthodox rabbi, but, um, what do you, what the, the argument is, is, is this considered sniut? Is this, or is this not considered? You know, is this considered okay as a head covering? Is it not considered okay as a head covering? So, these are not customs. Customs, you would say, let's say rice or something else, and well, and kidneys, whatever. Yeah, whatever it is that you, these are different ideas, they're different customs. These are not. You're going. Uh, you know, wherever you go into the world, the Torah is the same, the Shabbos is the same. You could go and your your ashkas, you could pay in start. First of all, I don't know who you know. Those people, because <laughs> yeah, generally, I, uh, if they tell you the horror about it, my rabbi says, you know, the in in general, I'll tell you like this. In general, there are different. First of all, a lot of these things are customs. A lot of these laws are customs. Now, granted, these customs are different, but some of these there's there's all different. Every every idea has to deal with itself. There's some things that come with the rabbi's stringencies. For example, you have Chayyim Rabbeinu Gershom that you can't marry more than one wife. Right? And that's for the Ashkenazim. The Sephardim, and it was only supposed to be for a thousand years. And then you have the Sephardim, that you can't do it, you shouldn't do it. Now again, these, well, you say, oh, the two, two contradicting ideas. Not really. Over here, you know, according to that, you know, according to the, you know, this rabbi, he says you should not do it. And the rabbi says, no, it's okay. And uh, for whatever it is, different society, different things. So you think of it as the fences were different in different areas. There were different things that needed in different places because they, they you, there's so many factors that come to play. Who is the people that you're living around? Who are the people that you're dealing with? Are they on a high level? Are they on a low level? Are they going to be able to do this? So, in essence, the bottom line, the halakha is the halakha. It stays the same. These minor differences on, you know, can you shave beforehand and you don't shave afterwards, these are different customs that are not, uh, they're, they're not the difference in the, um, you know, that... So... Nowadays, we could still have difference of arguments, for example, especially after the Shulchan Aruch, after the Shulchan Aruch, so it's known as the period of the Achronim, this is the time where, you know, they, there wasn't a, the Shulchan Aruch sort of unified everything. The Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah went and unified everything. But now, and nowadays, not necessarily, you could still have two rabbis that would, that would rule two different ways. And this, the halakha is still, you go according to, to, to your, to your rabbi. Um, because this was a price that you had that, that was that had to pay to go and have the rabbis get involved in it. This is a price, and it always will be like that. And it's a price, and this is. Ah, uh, when the shayach comes, is a whole different, a whole different story. We have a whole take on the yeah. Yeah. You're saying when Yisro came and gave him that uh, the idea to go and hire, you know, judges. So, yeah. The bottom line, whichever way you look at it, it was supposed to be this way. How do we know that? Because it says straight out in Shemos. It says straight out that you have to go after the majority. If you think about it, the Torah says that you have to go according to the majority. Everybody who got the Torah would be like, what are you talking about? What majority? Why should we ever need majority? 
So we just go according to Allah. Like the question should have been already since the beginning. What majority are we dealing with over here? And the answer is because it depends on the majority. It depends on different things. Different ideas will come up. And it's, it was worth it for God to go and do it this way. Of course, the way that we explained it. I thought it was good. It was good. I don't know. For me, it was beautiful. Okay. And from one other person. Thank you. Um, uh, should you want to go through the 13 ways of things? Okay. Okay. Uh, if anybody does want to leave, by all means, I don't feel insulted. I will write your name down and give it to a capitalist. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, you know, do, do your thing. Okay, so the reason why I have it over here is uh, I, I realize a lot of you in here possibly would not have heard this. So this is basically just like notes that I'm going to practically read majority off it, but it's easier to visualize it when you actually see it. So I think that would work a little bit uh, you know, better for you. So here is, for example, a Kalva Homer that we, uh, that we mentioned uh, before. So we give a different example. Here's an example that we have over here um, in the Torah that, uh, regarding a Kalva Homer. So when, when Miriam went and was, and was uh, sent out of the camp, Moshe asked for leniency. And when Moshe asked for leniency, um, God replied, Hashem replied, and it says, if a father spits in her face, would have spit on her daughter's face, for sure she wouldn't see him in seven days because she would feel... Oh, yes, I'm sorry. If only I would know how to do that. Thank you. There we go. Can you add music in it? No, I'm kidding. Okay, here we go. Perfect. Is that better? Okay, thank you. So... Yeah, if you're going to look at spelling, then don't look at it at all. Um, or grammar, then uh, you know, completely ignore whatever you're going to see, and that's great. So, because um, I learned it from China, and um, it's backwards. Okay, so now, um, so, th- so if, if this is the Kabbalah Homer, what's the Kabbalah Homer? So again, these are the 13 methods that the Torah gets expanded, the Darshan's upon. If... God would, if somebody would, if God would, if a father would spit in the daughter's face, for sure she wouldn't see him in seven days. Certainly, if God does that, certainly she shouldn't see him for seven days. And that's why she got kicked out, uh, for seven days. Let's try to leave all these questions until the end, uh, cause, well, you know what? I don't even know if we're gonna deal with that at end. Okay. The next thing, number two, is something called Xera Shava. Xera Shava, and we're gonna go through the examples. So we have here two verses. Number one, you see a verse in Numbers, chapter 9, verse 2. It says it, it's regarding carbon Pesach, and we have in Numbers 28, verse 2. It's regarding carbon Tavid. Both those verses use the same word called Memoado. Memoado is the same exact word. And when we learned, and the Gemara in Pesachim goes and brings it down, and we learned something, it's, it's the same exact you know, terminology, word that's used in one, in one verse, and there's a law over there, we can apply it also to the second verse. So we learn over here that the carbon Tavid, it's, it has to be brought in its car, and it says in bimodo in its proper time. This means halacha for a carbon tamid. Even on Shabbat, you bring the carbon tamid. Which means is that even the carbon pesach, you're gonna go and you're gonna offer it in its proper time, even that it is on, on Shabbat. Okay. Number three is something called a binyan av. Binyan av is, so if you have a rule that's learned out from one pasuk or two pasukim, it's applied to all cases that are similar to the one. So for example over here, we have over here the permission, I don't know why I didn't write the, the, the I should have wrote the source. The permission to prepare food on Yom Tov is only says regarding Pesach. But that doesn't mean only for Pesach, it means all the other Chagim as well, all the other holidays as well. And we learned that from something called Abinyan Av. Then there's something called Miklal Uprat. Uh, klal is something that is a general statement, and prat is something that's specific, something that's very, uh, uh, very, very catered. So if I say, for example, here's an example. If I say animals and goats, animals is a general subject, and goats is a more specific subject. So, we says over here in Vayikra, Leviticus, chapter, uh, 1, verse 2, it says that the animals, um, you, the, regarding, regarding kobanot, from the animals, from the cattle, and from the sheep. 
So we see over here in this pasuk, you have the animal is the klal, the cattle and the sheep is a prat, is the specific. What do we learn over here? If you have something that's general, and then you have something that's specific, then you know that it's only referring to the specific. The halakha, the, whatever we're talking about is only specific, which means over here that cattle and sheep are the only people, or the only people, no, the only mammals that should be offered as sacrifices. Do not sacrifice any uh, human being. Unless it's your husband, then you're probably allowed to. Um, so you, you have over here, when something is general, and then something is particular, it's dealing specifically with just the particular and nothing else. Okay, number five. Mipratu klal. This is exactly you switch. So you have something that is first something specific, and then you have something that's general. So look at the, the pasuk that we have over here. I wonder if I can highlight it as I speak. No, I can't. Shoot. What? So again, these are, I'm giving you a very brief overview on it. This is, is this the majority, is, majority rules this? The majority rules in general, in the, in the general case. Again, I say in general, these are the method of expounding the Torah. So we, so far, if we just stop over here, you could see how two different, well, I don't know, not necessarily in these cases, you could have two different interpretations that could come out, possibly, maybe, you could say like this, say like that, but we'll see as we'll go further, they'll possibly will be more clear. So now number five, Miprat Uklal is the, is, the, is the split. By the way, whoever reads Kolbanot in the morning knows, realize that we say this every uh, single day we, in the prayers. The, um, in Exodus chapter 22 verse 9, it says, if a person gave, if a person gave somebody a, a donkey, a sheep, or an ox, or any other animal to watch. So we see over here a donkey, sheep, or an ox. Very specific. And then in general, any animal to watch. So what do we see over here? That the rule is not limited only to these three animals. It's limited, it's, it's all animals. So if you give any animals to watch. So we realize we switched it. So first we said, if you say something general and then something specific, it's dealing with only the specific. If you say something specific and then general, it's referring to everything in its entirety. That's how we derive uh, laws. Then we have miklau prat uklau. So you have some miklau, so you have something that's general, then you have something specific, and then you have something general again. Let's look at the example. Example in, in Devarim, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 26. Itari says that regarding the Maitre Shani, you could spend it on whatever your soul desires, that's something that's general, and then you could set, or you, then it goes on, on cattle, on sheep, and on wine, and then that's something that is specific, and then again, anything that your soul wants, that's again general. So we have here general, specific, and general. What this is referring to, what we learn from over here, these are things that you could, anything that is like those things. So anything that is like meat or like the beverages, you're allowed to do it. It doesn't go only these, but it's specific to that type of, of uh, um, idea that the Torah is speaking about. Number seven. I know we're going through it fast. This is really just to uh, quickly go through it because it is getting very late. It says, number seven, So when does everything that we just said beforehand, this is only in reference to when we actually when we actually don't need the extra information. We don't need that for information. We, we need, but it's something that gives us extra. But however, if something is there to clarify something, then it's called prat, that thing does not have any effect. So we give an example of Deuteronomy, Devarim chapter 15, verse 19. Any firstborn that is born to your cattle and sheep, the male you shall sanctify to Hashem your God. So we see over here, there's something specific, general, that's a firstborn, and something that's, um, that's specific, that's male. But over here, we realize it's needed to say male, because firstborn could be woman or male. So over here, because we say that it's specific, so we don't, we don't say the whole thing about general and specific beforehand, because this is something that is needed. Okay, number eight. Kol davar, again, okay, should be a couple there. Kol davar shahaya bechlal, v'yatza min haklal alamed, loy lamed alatzmeyatza, ele lamed alakayatza. So here, what it means is a general statement that is singled out, it's not singled out to teach you something about itself, rather it's something about an entire category. An example over here is regarding Shabbat. So, 
if somebody in Exodus chapter 35 verse 3, it says, You're not allowed to go and light a fire. And then the, and then the, 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 then the Torah says, if somebody goes, and it, by mistake, Bishogeh goes and lights a fire, he has to bring a koban khatas. Now this, it only says it by, by, uh, by lighting a fire. But this actually extends it to mean any other of the malachot. If you do any of the malachot, you're, you're going, you have to bring, by mistake, you have to bring a koban khatat, not only by lighting of a fire. Because this is something that it's, when it's something that you're extracting one example from a group of examples, it's not only telling you that specific example, but rather the entire group of examples. Okay, for some of you, it's, but just, you know, whatever, it's just, you know, plow through this with me, or space out. Um, call Dava, number nine. So what it means over here is if you have something in the general category that is single out to discuss something that is similar to the category, this is telling you, this is being singled out to be lenient and not to be stringent. So the example over here is in, in uh, Shemot, in Exodus chapter 21 verse 12, somebody who kills another person is subject to death penalty. The next pasuk goes and says that if somebody kills a person by accident, he has to go to something called Alay Miklat, he has to go to the city of refuge. Now this doesn't mean that he has to go to the city of refuge and he has to get murdered, and he has, to, and he has a death penalty. Because it's coming to single out for leniency and not for stringency. So it's only that and not anything else that comes out. I know everybody's going to be on the online world and be like, well, you speak so fast, you know, slow down. So, um, I don't know, I'm just going to do it fast. Um, number 10, <laughs> you think I'll probably answer my own question that I've said, but no, no, I'm just going to go with it. It's late, that's why. Uh, number 10. So here is something very different. Something that is singled out from a category to discuss something that is not similar to the category. So something else that we said before. This could be both for leniency and for stringency. The example over here in Exodus chapter 21 verse 7 to 11. This is referring to uh, the, how a female servant goes and becomes free. Now it could be both for, it, she could come free in, in, easy, like in a lenient way I guess you could call it than a man or a male servant or it could be in a stringent way for a male servant it doesn't necessarily mean either one or the other it could be either or number 11 there's only 13 guys number 11 over here is anything that is included in a general category it's singled out and it's singled out it's to treat a new case cannot be returned to the same general category unless the Torah specifically says it an example when I say the, the, the first paragraph usually is just, a, you know, a translation. Don't worry about that. The explanation is the easiest way to understand these things. So let's say a daughter of a Kohen. She goes and she marries a non-Kohen. So she can no longer have the ability to, let's say, eat truma. However, let's say she's no longer married to that person. Can she now go and eat truma again? So just, so she was in a category. And then she was, she came out of the category. She doesn't go back into that category unless there's a specific verse that says that. So we know that she can eat truma again because of the verse that we have in Leviticus chapter 22 verse 11 to the verse 13 that she's able, she is able to go back into that category. Number 12. The, uh, the a meaning of a pasuk can be expounded based on its context. Over here, you look at, for example, uh, the Ten Commandments says you're not allowed to steal. What does it mean not allowed to steal? It says many times, you're, they're stealing a lot of things over here. Maybe is it stealing money? Is it stealing this? The Torah is specifically referring to here kidnapping. Now, how do we know that it's talking about kidnapping? Because everything else in the Ten Commandments is a capital offense. So where we're dealing with something, for example, 
um, uh, you know, adultery or murder. These are capital crimes. We know when we're dealing with stealing, it must be a capital crime also. What is stealing in a capital crime? That's stealing a human life. It's still, that's kidnapping. That is a capital crime. So we see over here, based on the context, we're able to extract information uh, from that as well. And finally, the last one. Take a drink for this. Um, but hey, maybe that's why I drink so much, because I speak so fast. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? Um, let's say you have two verses that are contradicting each other how do you solve that if you find the third verse that goes and absolves it so here's an example a very good example in Exodus chapter 20 verse 19 it says that God spoke to us from heaven and then in Exodus chapter 19 verse 20 it says that God descended on Mount Sinai so the question is did God speak to us from heaven or did God speak to us on Sinai so then we look at the third pasuk in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 36. It clarifies this. It says, from the heaven he caused you to hear his voice and on earth you heard his words. So sometimes you have two contradicting verses. This is, uh, this is the third pasuk is going to go and is going to answer your uh, contradiction. Questions? How do you know where you're going to find it? Like those two pasukim... Again, so this is... Right. So Closer together and then all of a sudden oh, randomly you're going to find it? Like if, well, if you know the entire Torah then you'll know it. But I'm saying, so I'm saying that's why... That's why this is, this is, I left this all the way to the end. And that's why I wasn't even sure if I was going to say it tonight or I wouldn't say it tonight. But I figured it's good to know, even if you got just one or two ideas, just so you get some idea. If, even if you didn't get all 13, if you got just one or two, then you have just an idea of what we're dealing with over here, what we're talking about. So it makes a little, it puts a little, paints a little nicer, uh, a nicer picture in it. Um, but again, yeah, you have to know a lot, obviously. And it's not just, okay, you have these 13 points on the wall and you'll just start plugging in yourself. You actually have to have a lot of background in the Torah. You have to have a lot, of, you know, tons of stuff to even just begin to understand this. Questions? If there's a poor boss called a Larry's, you know, who basically at that point when she gets she can't get a true role, if she becomes poor all of a sudden, what would you encourage to watch? That's an interesting question. Not necessarily. Um, not necessarily. Um, if you deal with that, then you could say, you know, and they come to a difficult time. Would that also lead to divorce? If it's a bad marriage, yes, you know, it could be. But if it's a good marriage and the way it should be, and again, that's very difficult nowadays to have a good marriage, but you know, if you work in it, you can. Then, it, not necessarily. Sounds so encouraging. What? Yeah, okay, let's rephrase that. You know what, though? It's important that I said that. It's, okay, yeah, no, but, but the truth is that, that if you work on a marriage, then you have the ability to make it awesome and amazing. If you don't work on a marriage, then, you know, as they say in Brooklyn, forget about it. Um, it's, it, it, but it, it's really true. You do need to work on it. Even if your marriage is awesome, you still have to work on it. The problem is, is that both parties need to be wanting to work on it. And both parties need to be willing to put 110%. And if they don't, then you're going to hear, you're going to feel some slack on it. Um, it's very important to work on marriage. It's very important to the constantly, because any factor that could come in could lead to, you know, problems. If you're a strong front, then you're able to do it. Is it difficult nowadays? Yes. Is it impossible? No. You have to both want to do it. And that's why since the beginning, from the beginning of the marriage, you have to go and work at it together. You have to have good communication. You have to have good understanding with each other. You have to have boundaries. You know, there's things that needs to, that needs to happen. And this is where, you know, it's very important. Marriage therapies, rabbis, whatever you need to deal with to, to uh, go with these. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.